You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. All right, we've got a really special episode today. I'm really excited to introduce our guests, and it is Brian Smith, who is professor of Hebrew Bible at Messiah University. I'll share a little bit about him. Uh, He grew up in the Midwest, but has spent most of his adult life in the East Coast and Mid-Atlantic regions of the United States. He had a little brief stint in uh, youth ministry, which led to him going to seminary and then getting a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near East Studies. His work now at Maasai University has been uh, overall uh, some in campus ministries, as well as then in the Department of Biblical, Religious, and Philosophical Studies. In addition to teaching courses in Hebrew Bible and hermeneutics, he co-directs alongside me, something many of you will have heard of already, Thriving Together Congregations for Racial Justice, which challenges local churches to grapple with central Pennsylvania's racialized past and respond with new work for justice. Brian has a deep fondness for trees and woodworking and enjoys life with his partner, Jackie, whom he married this past summer. And I should also mention that Brian is, again, of course, one of my colleagues, but he's also one of my former professors as well. I believe I took a course with him on like poetic literature in the Hebrew Bible uh, way back when in the dark ages, Um, though I've gotten to know him way more um, as a colleague in more recent years. And so, Brian, it is my pleasure to welcome welcome you to Inverse Podcast. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Jared. It's great to be with you all, and uh, it's nice to meet all these folks from across the uh, the globe. I've, I uh, I knew you guys were international, but it's really a delight to see so many continents represented here. So I look forward to to our time together. It's great. Yeah, us too, Brian. Um, and congrats on um, uh, tying the knot. That's very exciting. And there's a number of us. Uh, I saw um, Sarah Quint um, say, "Yay, trees!" Or maybe that was April. Um, but there's a number of us who saw the mention of um, trees in your bio, and we're really excited to actually get into that. Um, I think oh, cool. um, there, there is a there is a secret fan club um, for whom uh, that has has ticked a box. But before we do, I thought maybe as a way of introducing um, uh, those of us who aren't in your neck of the woods, would you talk a little bit about this project that that you and Drew are spearheading uh, on the ground where you are? Um, and what this initiative actually means for your context. Sure. Um, folks in the U.S. will be familiar with something called the Lilly Endowment, which is a um, philanthropic wing of a very large and globally influential pharmaceutical company, <laughs> the Lilly, uh, Lilly uh, Company Pharmaceuticals. Um, but they they do an enormous amount of funding of uh educational and uh, and religious uh, work in the U.S. And uh, Messiah University has been the recipient of a number of significant grants uh, over my decade, my two decades at the, at the school. And the program that, that Drew and I are part of right now is part of Lilly's Thriving Congregations program. The granting and the programming is actually being facilitated by a um, 
uh, clergy education out of uh, Duke Divinity School. But the, the, the question that drove the, the granting process was, what does it mean for congregations to thrive and how do we help congregations thrive? And um, I am really glad that we are doing this as a as a, a university, because I like to think of us as doing more than just educating young people. I, I would like to think of Messiah University as a resource for churches mm-hmm. beyond what we do in the department, particularly maybe training educators or training church leaders or training folks who are going to do work in nonprofits or other forms of ministry. Um, I would like to think that we can have a an important role in our region, working with our congregations in our in our in our uh, particular space. So uh, Drew and our dean, uh, a man named Peter Powers, who is, has a terrific support in this regard and has done a lot of work in his own right in the area of, of racial justice, um, and myself and several others, imagined thriving around and, and centering that question of thriving around of racial justice work. And um, our region is divided by a river, the Susquehanna River. It's its name from the Susquehannock uh, Indian community. And um, the Harrisburg's cap, the capital city of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, sits on one side of that river, and the other side is on the western edge of the river. And the folks, we, we call it the West Shore, but it has another name, which is the White Shore. And it <laughs> speaks to the historical divisions of our region uh, that are economic and racial and um educational uh, it's just a, it's a long-standing divide we have a history of um, sundown towning and for those who aren't here in the states uh, a sundown town is a town that historically was a place where uh, if you were not white you wanted to be out of by sundown um, there's a history of racially restricted um, housing covenants in some of our neighborhoods and so we wanted to give churches an opportunity to learn about our region's history to come to terms with the current realities that have resulted from that history to explore the relationship between their own congregations and perhaps their denominational history in relation to racial justice or injustice and then to dream about work we might be able to do individually as congregations or together in partnerships across the region to revitalize or to develop new ministries around racial justice. So it's, it's very exciting work to do. And we have 12 congregations that are involved right now. And we will begin a new cohort uh, in about a year. Well, we'll be recruiting this year. And so we'll start in, the, I guess, in early summer of 23. We'll start the second cohort of another 12 churches. So it's, it's neat. It's a, it's a way to try to think about having a really great positive impact on our region as an educational institution that primarily educates undergraduate students. Yeah, well, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be working with Brian on this. And um, we've already seen um, the impact uh, just recently. Um, I think I think I told you, Jared, that I was doing some organizing work with Power Interfaith around uh, mm. this anti-white Christian nationalism kind of movement. And uh, we were able to get a, a wide range of our churches and leaders out who have not ever engaged in public action before um, to kind of get involved in the public sphere, speak up, stand up, um, stand in solidarity with their 
uh, brothers, uh, Muslim and Jewish brothers and sisters. And so it was really good. It was kind of neat to see at least a seed kind of growing and forming and the impact of that. And so we're hoping to really build on that. And as Brian said, with a whole new cohort next time to really multiply the impact that the church can have in our communities here in central Pennsylvania, which is not known for being a racially just place. Um, <laughs> it's not the reputation of central Pennsylvania. So, um, so we're trying to make change that narrative uh, little by little. So yeah, wow. it's been really great working with Brian on this. Mm. Um, so Brian, you know, that uh, one of the things that we love to do is to really ground uh you know, our time by uh, just allowing you to read a text that can kind of simmer and shape the atmosphere. So what's the text that you've chosen for to read? And can you read that for us? Sure. I'm going to pick up text. I'm going to use a text today that is enjoying perhaps a resurgence in popularity. I think these things probably wax and wane over the decades, depending on where you are in the world. Um, something that my, my students seem to really enjoy is, is uh, the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. And I'm not going to go to verse 11, but we're going to read um, together verses 1 and then uh, 4, 5, 6, and 7. So here's Jeremiah 29, chapter 1, or verse 1. This is the New Revised Standard Version um, that I'm using today. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And now I'll skip to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Um, Brian, thank you. We always like to start with um, that autobiographical piece. When do you first remember encountering the Bible? I was pretty young. Um, I can't remember a specific time. I was raised in a, I would describe a, as a fundagelical uh, home. Um, <laughs> Um, I was raised in the Plymouth Brethren tradition, which is something that came out of mm. England. Um, it was a reform movement within the Church of England in the uh, first half of the 1800s, um, based in Plymouth, England. Uh, em high emphasis on lay leadership. And um, so we had no, we actually had no pastoral staff. Um, mm. We had a board of elders and deacons, and, and they would do the work. They're all men. They would do the work of the church and we had a lot of bad preaching because it was all lay led. <laughs> we, we did have a, we, we did have a, uh, a couple of institutional in, uh, institutions nearby that we would give us some good opportunity for ed more education. Uh, we Moody Bible Institute was not far away from where I grew up in the Midwest and uh, a small Bible college called the Mayas Bible School. So we had some decent uh, biblical studies happening and there was a heavy emphasis on the Bible. 
Um, I can remember when I received my first Bible from the church, I was so excited to finally have received it that when I got home, I threw it up in the air in glee, like young boys will do, or I guess young girls will probably do this too. And it, it hit the ground and I cracked the binding uh, the first afternoon that I, that I owned it. And it was blue. The boys got blue Bibles and the girls got red Bibles. It may have been soon after I had uh, accepted Jesus into my heart as my personal savior, which is the language that we used uh, for becoming a Christian uh, when I was growing up. So it's always been a part of me. We, we attended uh, church twice on Sunday and went to Awana clubs on Wednesday evenings. And Awana is an acronym for approved workmen are not ashamed. And uh, a lot of Bible memorization and um, a version of the Olympics uh, with some running around in the gymnasium. It was kind of a Christian version of the Cub Scouts, which is another thing we have here in the U.S. that's got both male and female versions of, you know, exploring and learning and life skills, I guess. But this is a very uh, conservative Christian perspective on that, which really gave me a lot of I, I sort of carry around an inherent body of knowledge about the Bible that I, it's a literacy level that I am deeply grateful for. Um, particularly now, as I see, frankly, the church here in the U S is, is doing a lousy job of, of teaching our students and young people what what's in the Bible. They just don't have much context for, for that sort of thing. So it's, you know, my earliest memory, I, it's as far back as I can go. Wow. Brian, um, we, we've got another mate, called Brian, who's got a Plymouth background as well. Really? Uh, Brian McLaren. Yeah. Did you know oh, that? Yeah, yeah, McLaren yeah. Story? Yeah, he and I have had some good conversations about that way back in 2003 and four when he was pastoring the church here, not too far from here, actually, in, in Maryland. Uh, we took a group of students down to meet, meet with him. And so we made that yeah, connection right. there, too. Yeah, Jim yeah, Wallace, funny. you might know, actually grew up oh, in yeah. Plymouth. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Too. Wow. In fact, so, Jim Wallace, Jim Wallace, and my dad attended the same assembly outside uh, Detroit. Wow! And so when it Jim sounds Wallace like some people walk away from Plymouth Brethren with like an anarchic bent um, right, that they picked <laughs> up from um, uh, the priesthood of all believers, and some people just walk away with rapture theology. Would that be a, a fair summation? <laughs> Yeah, it is an interesting group. Another person that you might have might know of who, who uh, didn't grow up in the Plymouth Brethren, but became was heavily influenced by them early on in his faith life was uh, uh, Jamie Smith at at, uh, at um, Calvin uh, oh, J.K. Oh, Smith. Wow. Um, All right, sure. He he became a Christian while dating a girl who was a PB, and and so he has a whole little sidebar history of, uh, of that group too. And he and I were chatting about this one day when he, last time he was visiting at, at uh, Messiah. And he said, you know, for being an anti-intellectual group, they have a remarkable amount of scholarship that has come out of that, that tradition. Mm. And he's right. Mm. I mean, we, we, we gave the world dispensational theology. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure it's not all bad. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Think of the high quality film that we have offered because of that, the literature that has come out of that. I mean, Lord have mercy. My goodness. If that isn't a gift. I don't know. I don't know what it is. And, well, on that note, um, 
<laughs> I'm I'm curious. So as you, I mean, so you're kind of being um, kind of neutral at this point, just kind of being descriptive about, you know, your, your upbringing and your encounters with the Bible. But I'd be really curious to hear about how you personally experienced them and maybe how, even how you would interpret them now in terms of those early experiences with the Bible, um, harmful, healing, liberative, oppressive, like how, how would you make sense yeah. of um, what the work the Bible was doing uh, in a social, um, the social implications of it. I just want to pause and, 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 ref- and bask in the, in the, the fact that Drew just said that I was neutral. This is great. <laughs> Thank you, Drew. I appreciate that very much. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I did not, frankly, uh, become very serious about my faith until I was almost done with college. So I, you know, when I graduated from high school, I went off to a small Christian liberal arts school in the Midwest. And I, I you know, because that's what we all did, but I wasn't particularly committed. By the time I was a junior, I started to think a little more seriously about it. And I did some discipleship groups, as we called them, accountability groups in the 80s. Um, and then it was it was during my senior year, really, that I that I began to think more more critically about this and, and what it would mean for me. And so that's when I ended up following the lead of a of a pastor friend. Um, uh, sorry, well, a professor who became a good friend and was also a pastor. And he he was the one who suggested I think about doing some youth ministry. And um, so when I thought about the Bible at, the, at those moments, when I think back about how I was conceiving of the Bible then, it wasn't really um, oppressive, except that it was controlling certain behaviors that I was also struggling to, to control, right? My conception of what the Bible taught around my behavior was, was, uh, was you know, kind of guidelines. This is how you're supposed to live. And for a you know a, a twenty young twenty something in the eighties in the U.S. evangelical or fundamentalical that had everything to do with abortion and sexual morality. So you don't don't sleep around before you get married, and and you know you're you're a, a Reaganite. You're going to um, support wow. the the Republican Party. So. Wow. We were not a political family that, but that stuff was just in the water. The moral majority swimming. movement, right? Yeah. The, the moral majority yeah. at that time. So, wow. It was enormous at that time. And so my, you know, I, I voted for Reagan in my first presidential election and, you know, a lot of wonderful, my, my friends did too. I mean, it was just sort of the thing that we did. Um, but, it, but soon after I graduated from college, I also, got married and my my first wife was raised in a similar christian tradition her mm. church had roots in the plymouth Brethren, but her dad was a labor organizer mm. and and she was the first democrat that i really had thought knowingly willingly rubbed elbows with and so that began to you know life experience in my perspective is is if not the primary mover of us on these issues it is it is, um, it's a big one. Mm. And so I began to think a little bit differently about, about those sorts of things after I graduated from, from, uh, from college, I just saw oh, Dan Fulford, the, the Democrats have labor organizers. Maybe I shouldn't look at the chat. It's going to get me, it's going to get me distracted. <laughs> 
And in <laughs> Norway, you, ignore those people who are just going to make fun of U.S. politics. Things are too yeah, touchy. That's, at the yeah, they, they used to, Dan. There was a time. There was a time when they used to. Um, <laughs> so for me, the Bible was neither, I don't think it was neither liberative nor um, oppressive. I think because I grew up white, male, middle class, and straight, the Bible was empowering. The way I was reading it, it was just contributing to my own status as a as a secure white male in mm. in in every way. Mm. I didn't know that at the time, but in hindsight, that's what I see. Wow. So, and the way, of course, I read it and was taught to read it, just fed that stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, this is a safe place for confessions. We can. Every saint has a past, right? Um, and voting for Reagan <laughs> might be somebody else's story too. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I'm kidding, uh, of course, but I'm also aware that you're pointing to um, a journey about rereading the Bible or, or coming back mm-hmm. to the text in ways that, um, instead of actually building up um, uh, those that have power, that it can actually do all that stuff that Jesus's mum sang about and um, uh, topple those at the top um, instead of prop them up. Would you invite us into um, what became, I know you you lecture on hermeneutics, but um, mm-hmm. uh, for, for those who maybe find that word difficult to spell or just use it for Scrabble, um, w- would you invite us into that journey of uh, going um, from something that fit with um, Reaganomics to something um, that actually would question that and maybe more than question that. Yeah, I joke with my students, who needs Herman, right? Who is Herman and, <laughs> and, and why do we need him? Um, when I went to seminary, uh, it was on the East Coast of the US. It's a fairly interdenominational and yet it's on the conservative end of evangelicalism i think and it's in its heritage the school that where i was um i was introduced to formal biblical study i hadn't gotten in in undergrad um, beyond the survey classes that we had to take so i was suddenly introduced to formal biblical study i had begun doing the biblical languages a little bit before that but this is where i really jumped in uh head first and I just, I ate it up and I graduated believing that people in the pews cared about the finer points of um, uh, apocalypticism. And they cared about whether I was pre or post or mid trip. They, they, and then I realized, you know, they just, most people just want to figure out how to feed their families and, and uh, keep the roof in good repair. So mm. I, 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 I deeply appreciate the training that I got. Um, I, I have never been very theologically sophisticated. So I used to, my two best friends were uh, Dan and uh, Miles. And we, we worked in the bookstore together. And, and Miles was a, was a really hardcore West Coast Wesleyan. And Dan was a hardcore Midwest Presbyterian, and they would just go at it over predestination. And I would listen to them and think, wow, I I actually think I agree with both of you nearly all the time. And so I I found myself realizing that the Bible was was a little more flexible um, 
than most of us were willing to admit on the surface. Now, I was getting trained in my biblical studies classes that the, the grounding for the meaning of a text was in the author and the original context. And you couldn't do a responsible application without first doing all of the historical digging. And it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a historical critical approach. And when you do that in a, in a conservative context, you're grounding the, the current meaning in a responsible unpacking of what it meant back then. So the ancient text, the author, uh, the context controls or can function as a control for how we read it today. Um, and if you're uncomfortable with something like what Mary is singing about in Luke, then you spiritualize it. I see this in hindsight. I didn't see it at the time, but you sort of mm. turn things into it. Well, that's a spiritual truth, a spiritual oppression, a spiritual justice, however we might, might imagine that. And that really began to become more clear to me when I went to start my PhD. And, be, and, and through the grace of God, somehow I ended up doing my, my PhD work at a at a Jewish institution. I went to Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. And it was the first time in my life that I had been in a context where I was not in the majority. And, oh, wow. and I think God knew that that was the one context that I could handle. I can handle a white space where I'm, my minority status is just that I'm a Christian and I'm not Jewish. I was still, I still had Christian friends, but it was the most gentle way in, you know, and so I, I began to read from a perspective that was also being fed by non-Christians. But these weren't non-Christians who wanted to prove that I was wrong. These were non-Christians who just wanted to talk about Bible. And when they encountered mm -hmm. challenges or when they wanted to unpack something about the past, it wasn't the kind of um, iron uh, restrictive, this is what the meaning has to be. It was, let's look at all the ways this, this has been read over time and think about how the community has perpetually breathed life into this text by reading it in all its different ways and how that, how can we continue to engage not just the text in its original environment, even if we can talk about getting back there, that's another question. <laughs> how do we engage the text as a result of the, um, the way communities have engaged it throughout the history of the text? Mm. And, and I sometimes joke, meanly that I, I learned about grace at seminary, but I experienced grace in the Jewish context at Hebrew Union College, Jewish mm -hmm. Institute of Religion. Even if it's the, the money, they have money set aside for non-Jewish students. I don't know wow. any Christian institution that sets aside money for non-Christian students out of a belief that those non-Christian students will enrich their environment and mm. share with you know, and make it better for everybody we just don't think that way unfortunately and so i was the beneficiary of that of that grace and uh and i continue to to draw on that on that experience that i had and they would engage the critical issues they would they would do the the, the good scholarship that that we were forced to do in in, in seminary uh but but it didn't become uh, an effort in fear it became an effort in mm. in openness and, and and joy and playing with the text and exploring what the text can be you know, the beautiful rabbinic idea that god gave us the bible so now it's ours you know <laughs> it's, god gave us the torah um, and 
so we can we can we can really engage it in a way that I think is is uh, is 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 liberating. So now I tend to see a more liberative, although more on that later. I think it functions liberatively differently for different folks. Yeah, uh, that's that's great, Brian. Um, and I always really appreciate when I hear you talk about because I've heard you other times as well talk about just the impact of um, your PhD program and. Um, that being a really pivotal turning point for you. And so, yeah, I, I just yeah. appreciate you hearing that, hearing that again. And so I would love for you to, you know, take, you know, you talked about um, these moves on one hand where you were being raised, where on one hand, they're trying to take scripture very seriously to some degree, right. In terms of yeah. um, how they're engaging it. But yet when they came to like these justice oriented texts that would maybe subvert, uh, their priorities, then there was this move to spiritualize it. And then in contrast, this plurality of readings that you've been able to um, uh, play in, right? And to bring life to these texts. And so could you bring all those energies into this Jeremiah 29 text? Uh, and, and let's read that together and have a good conversation. Can you start us off yeah. with that? Sure. I was even thinking, Brian, as you were saying it, that um, uh, seek peace. Oh, that that's spiritual, and prosperity. Well, that's physical. That's <laughs> that's physical. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, you know, this is this is my thinking on this is still developing. It's it's very fresh in my head because you know this. I've been avoiding Jeremiah twenty nine because my students are have drunk the Kool Aid a long time ago, and I'm I'm trying to stay away from it these days. But but it was dropped in my lap, and I'm 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 trying to find a way through this in a way that is informed by recent thinking that I've also done about some other passages. So, you know, that first verse. These are the words that of the letter. You know. Jeremiah communicates in a variety of ways. So this letter is one more way that he's communicating to people. I do think the end of that verse is interesting that Nebuchadnezzar had taken these people into exile. So exile, this forced migration, an unwilling move, a desettling from one space to another. I have typically seen, and I think most of us would have typically said that that is, that is punishment for infidelity. Israel has been misbehaving, and this is the last straw. And just as the northern kingdom has gone into exile 120 years or so beforehand, now the southern kingdom is going into exile as well. But God does that by using Nebuchadnezzar. So it, you know, who's the agent of the exile here? Israel is to blame, I guess, or Judah is to blame, I guess you could say, right, for her, her misdeeds. God has set up the, the rules, and the Nebuchadnezzar is the agent. But then in verse 4, God is very honest. That God is the one who has sent these folks into exile. So this notion of exile is rolling around in my noggin a little bit. Who, who, you know, how do we think about exile as both punishment and consequence and, and who's behind it? Are you, the people are to blame, but the one who set up the rules and who decided, you know, how 
you know, what would be the cut, the result? Why is exile the punishment? Is the land that important? So this, all this stuff is really, really great to think about. But by the time you get further into the actual message, verses five and six and seven, exile has no longer, it doesn't seem to me to be a punishment anymore. It's simply a reality within which we have building and living and planting and eating and marrying and producing children and watching children get married and grandchildren be born and multiplying. So these are all nouns and verbs of, of increase. So it's, 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 the context is exilic, but the activity is very opposite of that. Hmm. And then verse seven, seeking the shalom welfare here in the new revised standard version is, is shalom, which you all have probably talked about a fair bit. It's, it's a very holistic notion. It, in, it incorporates a certain degree of, of prosperity, but it really, uh, in its ground level is a, is a wholeness, a completeness, a mm -hmm. completeness, nothing's out of bound balance or place. Everything is, is taken care of. It's, um, there's a security behind it. Um, welfare is probably the um, the best single English word that I can think of anyway for, for translating that idea. Miroslav Volf loves flourishing. Yeah. And we flourishing for... Yeah, I appreciate that for the sense, for the way in which it's moving. It's moving. Flourishing feels like a... Hmm like an action to me it is right it's a, it's a perpetual sign of growth but i don't know sometimes i think about i, I get stressed out when i think about flourishing it feels like it feels like there might be an expectation that i'm not flourishing enough I, and one of the things i really like about shalom it's almost the way it sounds there's a real grounded safety in the in the in the notion of being secure shalom that's the opportunity for flourishing that you can flourish. I don't know if you can flourish without Shalom. I'm not going to disagree with both, but maybe I'll tell you that I, I, I appreciate that, but I'm not as big a fan as he might be of it. But, but your, your, your Shalom, your, your welfare, your safety is, is actually dependent upon the welfare and the safety and the security of the place into which you are sent so your prison becomes your greenhouse um mm. and your flourishing depends on how well that is that happens so that to me is a really remarkable um take on exile and before i get too far into think of how beautiful that sounds let's not Forget, this is exile. I mean, this is not fun. None of these people are happy about this. This message is being rejected, in fact, by the people that, to whom Jeremiah is sending it. The rest of the chapter, if you want to read it, you get to Jeremiah's conflict with the people who don't like the fact that he's telling them to do this. Yeah. So Jeremiah's got, I don't know if Jeremiah is flourishing much in his life. Uh, <laughs> it's the weeping prophet. But I do think there's a deep irony in this notion of shalom. Um, as it is described here in in four, five, and six, and the it, there's an irony in the shalom, and there's an irony in 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 exile too. These two things are coming together in a way that I think is 
frankly, very biblical. Um, there's deep irony that runs all throughout the text. And this is, this is just another example of it. So this really struck me. I have sent you into exile, but here's how I want you to behave when you're there. And if you, if you actually don't, you know, the, the way you're going to do all that stuff is by caring for the place you're going to. So the work that the exiles are called to do within the context of Babylon is for the benefit of themselves, yes, but they can't get there without benefiting Babylon. And I'm still unpacking this, but this is where it begins to, to resonate with me as I unpack my own privilege. Where am I in this text? I, frankly, I've never been in exile. Even when I was in that, you know, for that brief period of time, one of, you know, a handful of Christians within the context, I was, I was privileged. I was, I was supported. I was loved and cared for. So I, I've never been in exile. I don't even know that I've ever been in spiritual exile. I have felt spiritually lonely. But if I'm frank about this, if I'm honest about this, I am more connected in my history with those who are the host of the exiles. Mm -hmm. Am I Babylon in this text? Mm -hmm. And if I am, then my thriving is, is their thriving is wrapped up in my thriving, but the gifts that the exiles give to me is what results in our communal exile or thriving, mm -hmm. our communal shalom. And they are bringing gifts to me. I mean, for, for the church, just to, um, uh, what's the term you use in North America when talking about refugees? Undocumented? Undocumented. Well, if you're or illegal. compassionate, right, you'd say undocumented. Right. And, right. Or migrants is, is just the term that often gets used, right? Yeah, yeah immigrants, yeah. Yeah. But that, yeah. that's profound, Brian, like. Yeah, and I, so this is, Drew knows this about me. I, I've been trying to figure out my place in all this work now. Um, I taught him years ago. Now he's teaching me um, when, I, when I need the next book to read. I just go to next door to Drew's office. All right, what's the next one I have to, to read? So I, just as a lot of folks are rereading the Exodus narrative and thinking, am I the Egyptian? I see somebody in the comments has written, am I the Roman? you know, am I the Babylonian? And that, that's, that's not my fault. That's, I, you know, that's, that is, we just, we just have to own that, that that's the reality within which I was born. Hmm. But I'm now responsible to think about how I behave within that context. And if I am a host of exiles, if I am a part of the system that has forced people either out of my land or into my land. I'm using air quotes for those of yeah. you who are listening. Um, <laughs> if I am, if I am the so-called, you know, evictor and host of these unwilling millions, then I have to, I have to think about my relationship to those others as well, maybe I can. Can I think about them as 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 exiles from whom I can benefit, not monetarily, not mm. not in prosperity, but can I actually find shalom only by you know our mutual thriving? Mm. So I, I I'm still working this stuff out, but I could not help but read this passage within the context of that. Do listening um, as it has been given to me. 
uh, over the past few years. That's good. I think this is the first time I've heard someone. So I've, and I think you named it, right? Folks have talked about like, I've heard white people talk about, am I the Egyptian? Am I the, you know, like, who am I in this story? But I've not heard it tied to this text as we're thinking about Shalom. It's really, um, it is a different angle into it. I was thinking as you were talking, of course, I can't. So these kind of texts are texts that were always preached in black church spaces um, Mm -hmm. and certainly deep sense of, exilic existence and grappling with that and what is our Mm. calling in the midst of like being in a place that we had no choice in right um and one of it's it's fascinating like i mean you actually really in that text really emphasize both the babylonian work but also the god's claiming and which is one of those i've always struggled with jeremiah right Mm. i've struggled with jeremiah on that specific point right like like very heavy on like, this is God's doing. And I think, um, but I do think it it can invite two different postures for how to maybe make sense of, at least if if you're going to work within a paradigm, like how to make sense of that. And for me, it one can be um, opening us up to a sense of just, we're always called wherever we are in that place. And so this is the meaning, right? This is matter of, almost like you said, as a matter of fact, this is matter of fact now. Um, How do I understand God's call right now? But I do think like, I I know in the black community, there are segments in, in black church, like it's not, I don't know if it's the most mainstream, but it's, it's very present in dialogues pretty heavily is this idea of like, Oh, generational curse. I mean, you hear this all the time yeah. in certain mm-hmm. black church. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we got to break from our generational curse, right? And so it's almost like this is something God has done to punish. And I think that's the danger, right? That I'm always worried mm-hmm. about is internalizing our oppression and then shifting the blame upon ourselves as though there's something that we must do to break the curse, right? And so, um, so anyway, I, I, I wrestle with that, but I do really appreciate um, you opening us in, into this from a different angle. And for me, um, it always has me, you know, I mean, within broader, just African-American, you know, polls, there's always been this pull in terms of, um, you know, let's get out of here, right? We're not called to be here. Let's run and get out of here as quickly right. as possible. Cause this will never be a place where black people can thrive. Right. Or the, no, this is this is who we are now. This is our home now too, right? And we're going to make space for our children and our uh, children's children and their children and so forth to have a place where they can thrive and find welfare, right? Um, it's the W.E.B. Du Bois and Garvey, right? Uh, conversation all over again, yeah. that, that tension that I think this is inviting us to say, Let's have an imagination that kind of exilic is, existence is matter of fact, um, but that um, there can be a blessing, but it is going to be a blessing to everyone, right? It is yeah. going to be to the welfare of everyone, including those, um, which I mean, I think so it, it's hard for me not to think about. We literally just are on the cusp of or in the middle of election season here and waiting still on results, but the way in which, you know, Black people in general, keep at least some semblance of democracy alive in this yep. country, right? Um, 
you know, it's a gift, even for those who are fighting against it, um, that gift that is benefiting everyone. Um, yeah. It makes it more expansive, right? Space for more and more people. I um, mean, so anyway, those are just some of the things that I'm thinking about when I think about this, but, but that passage has always been huge for folks that are trying to dream of, you know, a really grounded future of what's possible for our communities. Um, you know, you know, Jeremiah 29 is always there um, in conversation. That's not, while there is some abuse of verse 11 that happens even in black churches right. as well. <laughs> um, but, but I oh, do yeah. think a much stronger tradition that has been really beautiful is grappling with what it means to settle down and to build homes and be a part of the land yeah. and to multiply on the land and to dream uh, for God's shalom for all of society. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, one of the things that occurs to me, Drew, as uh, I listen to you reflect on what Brian was sharing is that the gift Brian had during his PhD program of actually being amongst the people for whom this is their text. Mm, and when you're yeah. constantly remembering, I only get access to this because of Jesus. So yeah. I'm not replacing another right. people. Uh, I'm being grafted in to those people through this particular person. Um, right. is suddenly you have to read the text um, uh, not in ways that replace their punishment with another punishment, um, but instead mm -hmm. listening to how they've interpreted that and actually how do we interpret it um, through Jesus, which, again, the whole question of um, how we're going to understand punishment in light of the incarnation um, uh, makes Jeremiah a text that um, uh, it, it is a lot more fluid than maybe a flat reading that a lot of people might otherwise have. Um, and suddenly... Uh, what, what comes to mind for me, because, um, uh, I mean, you're both teaching at Messiah, um, conversation with um, the Anabaptist community, uh, for those of us who aren't Anabaptists, but had these idealised ideas of what Anabaptism was until we encountered Anabaptism in North America, and we're like, oh. <laughs> um, th there is a sense that this text gets reduced to love your enemies. And it's not a sense of love your enemies right. when I was hearing from you, Brian, where there's this, this strange sense to draw on what Drew was saying, that we're actually going to keep our integrity and dignity by remembering who we are, by not assimilating. But our not assimilating is actually going to be a blessing for those who are actually against us. And we're going to be free by being for them as a way of actually being who we are, which totally breaks with... Um, uh, the game that is being forced by like Babylon, right? Like here's, here's the borders. Um, here's how you play. And it's like, nah, you're here for this. And that's for everyone. And suddenly it's a very different conversation of, of what it is to be um, in these, Brian, you're, uh, what do you say about um, the, the prison becomes a place of, <laughs> Well, and I had never articulated it before, and I was a little worried as it came out of my mouth, but I think I said the prison becomes the greenhouse. Hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, the, the prison, I, I, I wonder about the, the Babylonians themselves. You know, they, they didn't, it wasn't their idea to go conquer. They didn't wake up in the morning and thought, oh, let's go ruin the lives of all the Judeans. The, suddenly these people end up living in and around them and amongst them, or maybe they're down the road in their own community. And the folks who have been hauled out of Israel or Judah, they're, 
read Psalm 44, they're thinking we've, we've never done anything to deserve what we're being treated like right now. Mm. In fact, God knows we're innocent, but we're still getting treated this way. So there's a degree of, of uh, connection, I think, too, among if we can imagine we don't have access to the, the sort of the non-elite groups in the ancient world. We just don't know what daily life was like. We don't know what they were thinking. Their, their experiences aren't recorded beyond the material world. But we can imagine it's not so different from our experiences where, you know, half of us aren't very happy with what our government is doing. Probably 80% of us aren't very happy with what our government is doing. And so when they move people groups around, and this happens within the U.S. a lot, even now, you know, if somebody in Florida decides to ship or Texas decides to ship a whole bunch of people up to Massachusetts, Mm. well, we'll feed them when they get off the bus because... It wasn't their idea and it wasn't our idea, but that's our reality. And that makes me think about a little bit about imagine, wonder, dream about the, the, Judea, the, the Judeans and the, and the Babylonians and the connections that, that they have on the ground level. And, and I even start to wonder, probably heretically, if taking wives and giving children in marriage doesn't begin to raise questions of actually sharing in life fully together mm. within this new neighborhood of exiles and unwilling hosts. Now that raises all kinds of problems that, Ezekiel, that Ezra and Nehemiah handled very poorly later, but it's, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a question <laughs> for me, right? Um, what does the true shalom of a city where you've got people from other parts of the world coming together, what does that, what does true flourishing look like in that context? Mm. Is, do we just stay ghettoized or do we actually live together? But that, mm. that's taking it in a direction that, that uh, I'm not sure Jeremiah would be happy about going, but he didn't know that I'd be reading his letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's good yeah i mean i think i i mean so if if we put in i mean just putting jeremiah in conversation with isaiah's vision of shalom right. in terms of just the interdependency of all of creation right um right and you kind of push that right. <laughs> idea extended out further, right? In terms of people and people groups, um, I don't think that that is yeah. um, at all a stretch. But um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate this conversation. I I also was thinking about um, it's it's fascinating being a black man teaching theology to majority white students, especially for mm. theology, like our proper theology classes, which tend to be majority white versus some of the other stuff. And even when right. I'm teaching, so like right now I'm teaching African-American theology and certainly my African-American theology classes have a higher percentage of African-American students and other students of color in general, but it's still a majority white like classroom. Mm. And it's interesting, like, you know, I always get to this point in the semester where like students are like so grateful for their opportunity to 
engage Cone and Kelly Brown Douglas and mm-hmm. to swim in the waters of the Black church traditions and the visits and all the things that I have them do that I think actually is quite an annoyance for them in the beginning of the semester, right? Because um, I mean, I have them, they're doing a lot of reading uh, up front. Yeah. They're watching documentaries and they're making church visits that's disrupting what they would normally, the churches that they would normally go to, right? Because <laughs> I force them, Jared, I make them go to, uh, you know, one AME, one Black mm-hmm. Baptist, and one other. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's Kojic, sometimes it's like a non-denominational Black church. But um, but like it comes to a point where there is a way in which like they, I think, see themselves kind of like what you're describing, Brian, right? Recipients of, right? something Mm -hmm. else and all of a sudden they have eyes to see like this because i think there's actually quite a bit of christianity yeah this this makes sense oh actually follow jesus Jesus, right oh okay let's try to take this stuff kind of seriously (laughs) and navigate really difficult questions that we're wrestling with and not just reproduce all the harm that we've seen you know so i think there is a lot of gratefulness to um for them to swim in different waters and to realize that they're beneficiaries and that right? That their welfare, they're, they're actually recipients, right? They're not the ones that are always giving, right? Um, but that they are now recipients. And I think that, um, yeah, this could preach, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I anoint you, Brian, <laughs> to go and to preach this to all the white people. <laughs> all right. That's right. <laughs> it's all the imprimatur I needed right there. Because it's pretty hard to do any form of like dominant Christian nationalism with this text. Mm. Like yeah. if you're being grafted right. into a, a displaced and um, uh, a, an exiled people um, and it, here's what it is to actually be a part of this project is to actually be a blessing um, uh, while you're not in power. Cause I mean, that's, you don't have to read between the lines right. here. It, it's like, Nope. <laughs> here's what you do even though like you've got no access to power that's the text right right, right. um and so every time somebody like quotes verse 11 which i'm sure some people will be listening to this go going i just thought verse 11 was the only verse in chapter 29 i just, <laughs> I, just, I wasn't right. aware there were 10 verses beforehand and a heap afterwards that that in itself has been a worthwhile listen to me for me this week yeah. But uh, I'm sure like the plans I have for you, for most people, are plans to be in the position of domination over, um, not a completely different alternative to all forms of domination. Uh, What it is to to seek the shalom, the well-being between between all, including natural living systems, like that's built into this text and the worldview that's producing it as well. And prosperity isn't the like prosperity as it's been deemed by Babylon, right? It, it's right. that of, uh, we're not going to say flourishing, um, but it, it, it's that <laughs> of um, good natural systems. Uh, but Brian, even when you um, reflected on flourishing as growth, I was like, ooh, we're back to Reaganism. Like, we're, <laughs> you know, this is unvetted, like kind of, right. um, you know, right. neoliberal growth, 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 growth. No, that's a Babylonian thing. Um, th- this is about... Yeah. Um, right relationship with all living things yeah and i, I don't know how you can read verse 11 yeah right how can you read verse 11 in light of verse 7 and think that it's about your 
shalom at the expense of others. Yeah. Right? I mean, verse 7 flips shalom around into the welfare of others. You, you don't have welfare without other people having welfare. Hmm. And these are not your friends' welfare. It's your enemy's welfare. Yeah. And, and so in that context, verse 11, you have, you have to... You, my plans for your welfare involve your enemies to welfare. Yeah, that's good. Mm. It makes me think about the different ways that freedom gets used in our language here in the United States, right? Yeah. And in the U.S., it's a hyper, for white Americans in particular, it's a hyper individualistic thing, right? My mm. freedoms. Um, but the Black church tradition has always been this expansive thing that always saw itself as interdependence, right? There is no liberation right. for me unless all are liberated, right? Um, yeah. And so, and I think that's where um, Black church theologies of liberation deeply tie into these theologies of shalom, right? Is in mm. the expansiveness that it actually means something for each and every one of us. So yeah, good. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, this I don't know. Rich. I thought you were gonna, uh, Jared, tie us into questions around trees. I know you want to go there. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm always going there. I, I just feel like there's somebody else who wants to go with me. <laughs> right. But before we do open it up for those who have joined us live um, uh, for a bit of Q&A, and I, I particularly want to introduce you to uh, Pastor Sarah Quint, um, who um, is a dear friend um, to both Drew and I, and is also bringing um, uh, her people uh, as an Indigenous woman on from Turtle Island in your context, um, which again brings a, a very different reading to these kind of questions about land displacement, um, these issues that you're talking about in terms of people being moved to different parts of America. Um, that that's the story of America, um, and yeah. uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to opening that up. Um, but. Both Sarah um, and April and others in the chat that you can see have all said, um, trees, please. So <laughs> you now have permission um, to link this together with your love of trees in any which way you want before we open it up for Q&A. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, you know, my dad gave me a love for woodworking. We always had a wood shop in the, in, in the house. And so I, I grew up making things out of wood and that sort of led then to an interest in Kind of a very lay person's interest in how they grow and and what roles they play in the environment and and our connections to them and the connections that I've begun to discover through reading uh, John Muir and Thomas Merton. Uh, yeah. There's a wonderful collection of Merton's writings called "When the Trees Say Nothing," his writings on nature, which I can I can highly recommend to folks. Mm. You know, I, I don't know what it is about a tree. You know, that there's something about being in the presence of trees that is very um, uh, calming and uh, humbling and restorative for me. And so I, you know, I really enjoy connecting with them. And I, I found working with wood as a way of clearing my head. It's, it's therapy for me. Um, so I, I, I really enjoy building things, but also being amongst them while they're alive and, and then thinking of ways that we can interact in, in mutually beneficial ways. We, I think we give, we receive much more from, from trees than we, have given to them. Um, but it's something that in my life I've always appreciated. And now I've, I've, I've sort of begun to, uh, I, I teach a little 
first year course called the tree of life. And I asked my students to think what the role, what role trees play in the Bible what role trees play in the world. And then how do we connect with trees in an intellectual, emotional, uh, imaginative, and, and even spiritual way. Uh, when you read trees in the Bible, it's, it's remarkable. You see, yeah. particularly in Genesis, half the times God shows up, there's a tree there or somebody's planting a tree to connect with the divine in some way. And it just raises really great, fascinating questions for me. So it's a very lay level interest, but I, but I, I, I love that in Ezekiel, we have, you know, happy mountains and trees that clap their hands and oh, that, that sort of stuff is, is writ, writ large in scripture. And for, for some of us, um, uh, some are quick to go, well, that, of course, it's poetry, but for some of us, it's experiential. Some of us, um, uh, you know, the, yeah. the practice of greenwashing now that um, has started oh, yeah. in Japan and has now gone um, global of um, uh, people seeking um, psychological and physical healing by being in creation and, you know, get away from neon lights and um, allow access to the elements that just doesn't come through a small window and instead actually be in the rest of living systems that um, it's, it's good for us. And uh, what it is to, to listen to the groans of all of creation and the praise of all oh, yeah. of creation uh, for, for some of us, it's hardwiring. And, and for some of us, it's incredibly important to our ancestors and how they have worshipped um, uh, both uh, pre and post Christian uh, for a whole bunch of us that is somehow deleted in most people's experience of mainstream Christianity oh, now. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I love that this text talks about planting gardens and even oh, the fact yeah. that your connection with trees is actually woodwork. I'm going to share something that um, I don't share often in public because people react to it um, so badly. But one of, one of my passions is spearfishing and I love fish. I'm also not a vegan. Like I eat fish and people are like, well, if you love fish so much, why do you eat them? And it's like, this is the most sustainable way to actually yeah. fish um, uh, like in the world, like you, you're literally swimming with them and catching one, not and one that, um, and it is possible for those who know traditional hunting as well um, that it's a prayerful experience and you're asking permission, and like experientially, and maybe it's you know to to borrow a expression um, from Drew's tradition, um, maybe it's just my sanctified imagination, right? Um, but there, there is sometimes it's like, yep. And there's sometimes it's like, no, nah, this isn't for me for whatever reason. And this mm. one goes. And for your connection to trees to actually be woodwork, I imagine some people would have a similar kind of reaction to kind of like, oh, yeah. oh, so if you love trees so much, why'd you make a chair out of it? And it's like, right. what, what, what on it? Like, but that's the right relationship, right? Like that's it actually is. what it is. I mean, when... Um, Martin Buber um, talks about the I-thou relationship, um, right. and he uses an example of a tree. If you if you read the text yeah. in full and just don't take the popular quote, he talks about like right. if you approach a tree not as an it but actually as a thou, and there is this this like deeply meditative, worshipful experience where mm -hmm. something actually is not like a a signifier, but is actually, it, it right. has a dignity of its own. 
Yep. Yeah, and I've also learned a lot from George Nakashima, a Japanese woodworker, furniture maker, who uh, has passed away now. His daughter is keeping his his uh, tradition alive. He's um, he was actually interned in the internment camps in the '40s in the U.S. Wow. He ended up settling in Eastern Pennsylvania with his family and developed a woodworking shop and built furniture. And he actually has a has a, a furniture set in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. It's remarkably beautiful stuff. His name is George Nakashima. Wow. Uh, he wrote a book called The Soul of a Tree, in which he writes about the the way building with wood is actually connecting with the spirit of the tree. It's, it's gorgeous. It's this wonderful mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interactive, I think, mutually, I hope it's, it, you know, it can be ideally a, a mutually enriching, beneficial, thriving, even flourishing uh, relationship. That's beautiful. Brian, thank you so much for uh, joining us. This has been really great. I appreciate you um, sharing your story, walking us through Jeremiah Jeremiah 29, turning our attention so it's not read in such ways that uh, prop up the American dream and other imperialistic dreams, but instead turns our attention to those uh, living in exilic existence and their gifts to all of us and so um yeah we really appreciate your time thank you for joining us well my pleasure it was uh, delightful to be invited and uh terrific to meet you jared and and, and the rest of you all so thanks so very much i've enjoyed you it you too mate. the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse 